Hey, what's up? Ken from Palm Beach Dino here. Welcome to our brand new podcast called Hit the Brakes, where we sit down with industry leaders, racers, and everyone in between. For the very first episode, I couldn't pick anybody else but Jerry Robleski. He's my mentor, former Ford engineer, behind the 4R70W, both at the OEM level and afterwards with the J-Mod founder of SCT, one of the largest tuning companies out there and very much responsible for the growth of remote tuning, one of the forefathers of this whole deal, and I'm very honored to have him on the show. I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to the very first podcast, Jerry. There wouldn't be anybody else I would ask to do it first besides you. Uh, a lot of people know your history, but not enough people, and I can't wait to get into the conversations here. Uh, I think most people know you or that would know you or what you've done. The biggest thing maybe not in your mind, but in general in the public is uh, SCT. So I think that's a good place to start. And then we can kind of jump around since obviously that's how I met you. Um, so real quick as a setup, uh, back in uh, 2003, I trailed my car up to Cleveland. I never met you or even knew your name at that point because uh, it was being done under Fordship.com. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that period of time and how it kind of got to that point, like leading up to, you know, me coming up there. Obviously, uh, you know, it was a dyno day. I think you probably tuned somewhere between, you would know better than me, 10 to 20 cars a day on those things. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how, like what that was all about? Um, okay, so what that's all about, you have to rewind the clock. Um, there was some guy somewhere in southeastern Michigan, and unfortunately I have no idea what his name was, but he had a 96, 97 Cobra that he road raced. And somewhere along the lines, he gets a hold of me and he wants me to tune his car. This will be, this is the first car I've ever, ever tuned outside of anything. And, uh, and I, I agreed to go to help the guy and he wanted to go to Steve's place in Cleveland and have me tune his car at that dyno. I mean, this is 2000 ish, something like that. So mm -hmm. there weren't a huge amount of chassis dynos out there. So we went out there and I probably spent the better part of a whole day working on this guy's car. And it picked up probably 10 to 15 horsepower. I mean, it was just an NA 96, 97 Mustang Cobra that he road raced. But, you know, there was a legitimate gain and we went back to the beginning to, you know, to show how much it gained and everything. And, and Steve, you know, and I were talking later and Steve said, you know, he's seen a lot of people come in, but nobody ever really able to to genuinely make more power than when they started on a, on a relatively NA car, a relatively stock car uh, prior to me coming there. And that's kind of how me and Steve started way back in uh, probably somewhere around 2000. Those are probably some of the only files that I still don't have or that I don't have from that guy's car. One interesting thing I'd be curious to know is uh, you said, you know, it was basically your first one out like in that format, like, like, how did he reach out to you? Like, like, did somebody recommend him or like, how did that happen? Honestly, I don't remember. You don't, you don't really remember. I don't remember. I, I, he, he ended up calling me. I don't remember how he got a hold of me or who recommended him, but I'm like, sure, I'll give it a shot. You know, I was doing some stuff with Kenny Bell and helping Ken Christie at Kenny Bell up to this point. Mm -hmm. Maybe it came from somebody that Jim knew if I had to maybe guess, because, okay. you know, Jim Bell knows virtually everybody in the in the automotive aftermarket. Yeah. And Steve was the owner of the place where you first tuned my car. Yeah. Uh, and that's, is that where you did the majority of your dyno? I know you moved around to different deals and we had a deal in Dayton we'll talk about later, which is where we actually first met. We didn't even meet the first time you tuned my car because uh, it was so busy and the way the system worked. And, you know, at that point, you weren't really putting your name, your personal name out there from what I could remember. 
so I knew about you, but it wasn't like, you know, it was more at that point I was getting tuned by Fordchip.com, not necessarily Jerry, which obviously we met after that and we'll go over that uh, later. So from that first car, did it just slowly progress from there and you just did more with Steve until it, it did. I mean, like Steve and I talked after I worked on that guy's Cobra and, and Steve said, Hey, can you do this for, for other vehicles? And I'm like, yeah, I can do it for, for virtually any computer controlled Ford. He goes, well, if I get some together, would you come back? And I'm like, sure. Why not? And then when I came back, again, one of the very first cars I've tuned when I went back to Steve's was a, a, a Mark 8 for Mike Bowen. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was actually a customer of Mike's that uh, I don't remember all the modifications, but you know that was probably back in 2001-ish or something. And initially I did probably you know every month or every other month I would go to Steve's place in Cleveland. You know, Steve made portable dynos. He, yep. he, Steve used to say that he did not do... Uh, he did not do performance work. He specialized in data. So he would build a portable dyno and, and be able to give people all the data they needed to do what they needed to do. Mm. But he would not do anything from a computer standpoint at that point in time. Gotcha. So, I didn't so, know that about Mike. Uh, I mean, obviously, I know Mike through you. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a friend. We don't talk that often. But I had no idea. I knew he went way back with you because pretty much anytime something comes up, you're like, you were probably there, Mike. But I didn't know that he was that early on. I mean. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So Mike's yep. a great guy. Uh, well, okay, so we want to keep going with that. But let's talk about how you were able to be in that position. You know, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, what what were you doing at that time that gave you this knowledge? You know, so so we'll rewind the clock and we'll go back to the early to mid 80s, mm -hmm. you know, I was always into cars, you know, part of that is uh, because of my dad sitting over my left shoulder. Um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to work on cars. And I graduated from the University of Michigan with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. And to be completely honest, I had virtually no idea what it meant to be an engineer and work on a car. I mean, I can honestly tell you sitting here that when I graduated in 1986, I had no idea what I was going to do. And then it just ended up being probably freak chance that my first job ends up being uh, powertrain calibration for for BOC Powertrain Detroit, working on uh, front-wheel drive uh, four five four nine Cadillacs and Northstar Cadillacs. And you think that's more of a result of the geography of where you were brought up and you were there? You think that was like oh, part absolutely, of it? yeah, absolutely. You know, and then I have, after two or three years at GM, I went to Ford. Was at Ford for about ten years. Did uh, mainly, you know, at GM I did emissions calibration. I was the emissions guy for all the Cadillac stuff. Uh, when I went to Ford, I worked on transmissions. And then uh, and I left Ford and went to Roush. Uh, Roush basically has like a little extension, a little arm that's an extension of Ford Motor Company. You know, the, it's difficult for Ford Motor Company to make money on low volume programs mm -hmm. because if it's a Ford Motor Company divide, developed program, you have to dot every I and cross every T. Mm -hmm. uh, if they have Roush do it, Roush won't. They'll still dot every I and cross every T, but instead of running the test, they'll use engineering judgment on some tests and say, this is going to be okay, so we don't have to run it. Where if Ford did it, they would have to run those tests. So you can, you can you know, save money by having these low-volume programs farmed out. Okay. So Roush had a whole little group. You know, they did, the, uh, they did the, the Lightning, they did the SVT Contour, the Mercury Marauder, uh, the Harley-Davidson truck. They did the Ford GT powertrain. I think they even did the the uh, GT 500s, the initial GT 500s. So there, you know, I went there and started a little transmission unit at Roush for a couple of years before I ended up uh, um, 
starting SCT. Yeah. And we'll get into that in just a second, but you completely glossed over the transmission part of Ford. And uh, <laughs> funny story, uh, you know, I, I got into this late. For those that don't know, I mean, I think I didn't buy my first Mustang until 2001, and I had no interest in modifying it until I hit a deer with it and needed the hood and found forums on the internet, and that pretty much changed my entire life uh, because I was like, wow, I didn't, I mean, I was not a car guy. I was a computer guy. Uh, I went to college for electronic media. I didn't change my own oil back then. You know, it was more just, hey, that's a cool looking Mustang and that's why I bought it. Obviously that's changed quite a bit. Uh, but even in the early days, I didn't even connect the dots to the J-Mod, you know, and for guys that have been around a long time, everybody knows the J-Mod for a 470W and that stands for Jerry. And I didn't know that for probably longer than I should have. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And that goes all the way back to, you know, wasn't that more towards like you were really heavy into the Thunderbirds at the time? I did. Yep. You know, we had uh, uh, a, a couple of Thunderbirds. We had a Super Coupe. We mm -hmm. have a, still have a 96 T-Bird that has a 462 valve NA in it that makes a whopping like 201 horsepower to the wheels. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and all these guys are buying all these aftermarket shift kits. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, you know, the aftermarket, the people, there are probably some smart people working and making shift kits out there. Um, maybe now, but certainly not back then. Mm. And, and, you know, when you would look and see what these companies would do, if you have an understanding of the transmission, you know, it was scary. It's like, well, this isn't going to accomplish what you want to do. Why are you doing this? So it's actually was very, very simple to turn around. If you can take the valve body or the main control off the transmission, you can literally drill out a couple of holes, either change or remove a couple of springs and put it together. And, you know, for the cost of basically uh, a fluid in a gasket, you can have yourself a transmission that shift way better than any of the aftermarket shift kits that were available. So I started, so I decided, okay, I'm going to put together an article on how to do all this stuff. And I believe the article is still floating somewhere around the internet. And it's a um, very detailed article. It is very detailed. Very There's all detailed. kinds of pictures and, and circles and arrows and all kinds of that stuff. And obviously, you know, you were involved in developing that transmission, right? And yep. so, I mean, there's not a better person to tell you how to modify it uh, than you, of course. So, you know, there's not as many people running that nowadays, but for a long, long time, that was the go-to setup. You yep. know, J-Mod, 470W, no matter what you had, you were going to put that Really in. until the six-speed came out. Yeah. You know, exactly. the 4R70 was a tra automatic transmission everybody used. Yeah, that's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how SCT came about. Um, that's where my story starts. Uh, I'll tell my part intertwined with your story, uh, but I really want to hear, like, what where at what point did you say, hey, this is possibly a great business to get into? And, like, what, what kind of went into that decision? So somewhere in the Northeast, I want to think it was in the Massachusetts area, there was a guy, his first name was Eric, his last name escapes me. He made a device called an Eek Tuner. You ever remember the Eek Tuner? Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, uh, I never used it, but I remember people talking about and it. it. And it plugged into the, into the J2, J3 port, whatever it is, on the back of a Eek 4, Eek 5, and you could do some stuff. Mm. And if you ever use the Eek Tuner software, it was horrible. I mean, it was basically you would have to, to do all this stuff in DOS and in text files and all this stuff to make changes. So there was actually, ironically, a T-Bird guy 
in, uh, in Southeastern Michigan. His name was Don Teeple. I've lost track of Don through the years. And he puts me in touch with a guy in uh, Atlanta called David Posea. David has an eek tuner. And all David wants to do is tune his own car. He has a 96, 97 Celine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember if, I think it was a supercharged Celine. All he wanted to do is tune his own car, but David was a pretty decent software writer. So Don puts me and David together and, and combined, we, you know, came up with a GUI eek tuner interface. Do you remember the GUI eek tuner mm-hmm. interface? Mm-hmm. So the GUI eek tuner was, was me and David collaborating to make something that was actually user friendly for the piece of hardware that Eric made. And it actually worked quite well. I mean, I actually, probably still have these, some of the original load files for it somewhere at home, but it was basically the, the predecessor to what is now SCT Advantage. It, was, it looked very similar and everything. And so David and I started expanding it to, to beyond just the common platforms. David made some tools. It was easy to make it to add into uh, to trucks and town cars and all these things that, had, you know, that Ford had besides just Mustangs and, and T-Birds. And then along comes Chris Johnson, and, and Chris is a fantastic sales guy. I mean, he could probably sell ice cubes to Eskimos. And, uh, and Chris comes and says, man, do you guys realize what you have here? And we're like, no. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, Chris kind of becomes part of the two of us. And he's, he's going to be the guy that's going to sell this thing and, and take it over and take over the world with it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the first step that, that Chris did is he sold it to Superchips. Mm-hmm. We developed a slightly different piece of the GUI eek tuner software, the very first version of Advantage, and sold it to Superchips. And Superchips used it for their own development. Mm. And they, they paid us a, a decent amount of money for that, that, that it worked and everything. And that's where, where really when we had that agreement with Superchips, it started SCT, which stood for? Superchips Custom Tuning. Superchips Custom Tuning. <clears throat> In fact, like <clears throat> early on, we'll try to put some pictures up over the video. Uh, you know, uh, originally we were using Super chips hardware with S and T, correct? Absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's circle back real quick because uh, you mentioned Chris Johnson, and some people probably know who he is, and he's the founder and owner of JMS Chip, and yep. was you know been around for a long time and is still around in a big way. And I knew about David being involved, but I don't know his background. Like, was he a car guy or an engineer or just kind of an enthusiast that learned? Um, David was a, somewhat of an enthusiast, but his his day job was writing software for a company in Atlanta. Okay, so he was a software so, guy. So, so he was, was a, his he was a big software. So guy. you were basically the IP tech. David was the software guy, and yep. Chris was the front man. And you know, he obviously you know knows a lot too, but he was more of like the sales guy and the face of the company kind of yeah deal. Okay, and then <clears throat> that's kind of where I you know met you. The first time you tuned my car in Cleveland, it, it went really well. And there was one little issue. It's kind of a funny story because you were kind of like, you know, the Wizard of Oz back then. Like, you know, nobody knew how to get in touch with you. Uh, there was no social media to speak of. And you, if you were on a forum, you weren't on the forums I was on. Or maybe I didn't know exactly how to get in touch with you. And uh, <clears throat> through the forums, I knew Doug Johnson. Uh, out of, I remember uh, Doug. Yep. And... Uh, at some point, I'm not sure exactly how, in a conversation with him, I mentioned to him I was having one little issue, and I think uh, whoever was helping you with Ford Chip at the time was having, I was having trouble getting in touch with them or whatever. And Doug was like, "Here's Jerry's email. You didn't get it for me, you know." And I, that's basically when we met each other is when I first emailed you. So anyway, uh, Doug gave me your email address, said you didn't get this for me, uh, which I can understand that now in the position I am where. 
you know, if everybody had your email address, it would be chaos. Uh, but luckily you didn't get upset when I emailed you and you know, it's been 20 years. So, uh, my memory's a little fuzzy, but I think we had quite a conversation going back and forth. And, uh, you basically told me, why don't you set up a dino day similar to what we did in Cleveland closer to me, which we wound up doing it in Dayton, Ohio back then, of course, like I don't have any contacts. We just get a random dyno and uh, post on the internet. Hey, everybody come here. Jerry will tune your car. I mean, back then it was fairly inexpensive, uh, you know, and I think looking back, you weren't really necessarily trying to make money at that. It was almost more about gathering the data to start SCT more than anything, or, you know, to, to further on your deal. And that's what made SCT so special in the beginning was all the data you provided. It wasn't just the software that could do it. It was the value files and all that. Uh, but I went to Dayton and, um, you brought Chris to that. That's the first time I met Chris and you, and, uh, you tuned my car. There was some funny stuff that went down there. I don't know if you remember with the Thunderbird guy, you were pretty, uh, you were pretty, uh, I guess call a firecracker or like a little bit, uh, you've calmed down quite a bit. You were, uh, so that was a very good, uh, first introduction to Jerry and it was awesome. You know, you just, you were just so passionate about yourself. And if somebody said something that was wrong, you were just like, you're wrong, you know, and it was great. And that really attracted me to the whole situation. Cause I could tell you really knew what you were talking about. And then, um, we went out to dinner and that's kind of how our relationship started. Uh, I believe at some point you probably just felt I would be good at it maybe. And you said, Hey, you, you know, I'm starting this new company. I want to talk to you about it. And to set the stage, I had a website back then called modulardepot.com, which was a very popular forum, but I was not the typical car forum guy. I, I wasn't really like super educated on cars. It was a situation where I, like I was more of a computer guy and somebody pushed me to start it. And, you know, it really kind of blew up into a fairly decent tech um, mecca for, for modular motors. And then that's, Partly, I believe, why, you know, you wanted to get involved with me. Um, and I think this is a very important story with SCT, which was the birth of the Pro Racer package, which kind of happened. I don't know if you remember uh, in between Chris Johnson crying over uh, the hot wings that we gave him. Uh, we kind of <laughs> came up with the plan for that. So I, I'd yep. like you to talk a little bit about the Pro Racer package and how important that was. So, so the Pro Racer package is geared towards somebody that that wants to tune their own car. They have some knowledge, maybe they're gonna make a lot of changes or do whatever, things like that, where constantly going back to a tuner becomes difficult to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes costly, it becomes, you know, time and, you know, not time effective and things like that. So, you know, the Pro Racer package was designed for that person that wanted to fiddle with their own car. The problem with that, the reason, you know, that we talked to, we basically rolled out the head modular depot control, the pro racer package is because, you know, when you have a dealer, that one dealer can tune X number of cars per year. Maybe it's a hundred cars a year or something like that. You could sell 300 racer packages in a month. Now you got to support all those 300 people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and SCT was still relatively small and it was not facilitized to deal with all those people at calling in and having questions. You know, our main focus was more towards the, the dealers and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it made sense to have someone, you know, like Modular Depot, like yourself, be responding, you know, take on, sell the Pro Racer package and support all those people. 
Obviously, you can't answer every one of their questions, but, you know, filter out the easy things Mm -hmm. and then just let the more difficult things come back to SCT and go from there. Yeah. And it turned out, you know, really, really well. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it to me, and this may have been your motivation also is here you're launching a new software. It's going to change the industry. You don't know that necessarily at the time, but you hope it's going to. But at some point you probably said like, okay, well, who's going to be the actual tuners, right? There's just, it wasn't that many tuners out there. So to me, it was a very good way to get the software into the hands of many and filter. It'll just naturally filter out into people that were like, Hey, I can make this a career and turn it into that. And there's, you know, quite a few pro racer package people uh, that I could remember that, uh, you know, are now professional tuners. I mean, we even sold, I really wish I would have done more with it at the time, but, uh, Christian von Koenigsegg, Koenigsegg supercars, you know, now, back then, they were, you know, still crazy cars, but they were using modular motors, yep. and I assume they were using uh, Ford computers? They I were, mean, and actually, yeah. Chris went in, to Sweden or where they were based out of and, and tuned all those Ford-powered uh, uh, Koenigseggs. Yeah, I remember when that order came through my website, because we were the only place you could buy it, and part of their agreement was we supported all that through our forum, like a private forum in our, you know, that you had to have access to. And, you know, again, I said, I didn't really know much back then. So you were basically propping me up to teach me to tune and, you know, uh, contribute to teaching all the pro racer guys and answer the questions. And, you know, that was how we made this work because I remember at the dinner, Chris was like, but how are we going to support it? And you're like, I'll do it, you know? I'll do it with, you know, Ken. And then over time, Ken will learn more and hopefully he can take over all that. And I believe it stayed that way for at least a couple of years. And then over time, you know, as SCT grew, they realized they wanted to sell it to more people. And, it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it all worked out great in the end. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for that, that version of SCT, I don't think it would have accelerated quite as quickly, you know, because instead you would have had yeah. to go like one dealer, one dealer, but now all of a sudden there's 300 guys. And then out of those 300 guys, if 10 or 20 of those become professional tuners, you know, it just, the whole thing kind of took care of itself. And the big thing about SCT, and I said this earlier, that made it so special of, uh, compared to any other software, which you didn't have a lot of competition at, at that point. But even like, even if you look at HP tuners today, uh, or any other software, they don't give you the data that you need, you know? And uh, you've been gone from SCT forever, and you know, that's they still do okay. But in the very beginning, it was to the point where even if you didn't know that much, you could basically load your value files. Okay, it's a blown two valve, it has these injectors, it has this mass air meter, whatever. And it, the car would run, which was just amazing. You know, it was unbelievably amazing. I remember in the early days, I would get cars at my shop that other tuners couldn't get to run. Whether, you know, I don't know if they were using SCT or not. And I would literally load your value files and do nothing else. And the car would idle and run almost perfectly. And it made me look better than uh, I really should have at the time. You know, it was like, you fixed my car. It's like, not really, like, uh, you know, not not exactly. <laughs> I basically have the right software. It's what I have, you know. I remember having a conversation with David somewhere in the late two thousands, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were talking, and and we both agreed that the value files were great, and the value files were also horrible because they're horrible because you have somebody that, like you said, doesn't know how to tune, can look good, 
but doesn't really ever get any better than that. Exactly. You know, and they can't, you know, if it doesn't, if the loading the value file doesn't solve the person's problems, they don't know what to do and they would, you know, blow up the car or do things like, you know, or, or have some other problems. And so there was a lot of discussion me and David had of whether it was, whether it was either great or whether it was bad. Yeah. You know? I, I can definitely see both sides of it. From my perspective as being brand new to like even modifying vehicles in the first place, let alone tuning, I don't think I could have gotten as far. I mean, you were like, you know, basically there whenever I needed you. And that's, you know, how you encouraged me to become a tuner and open a shop was you were like, you know, I'm like, how am I going to do this? You're like, do you have a question? Call me. And I remember, you know, being on the phone with you constantly and, you know, the value files got me, like you said, it would get me to a certain point, but then it's like, okay, now what, you know, I need to adjust this. And, uh, well, actually that's another really important topic beyond the pro racer package. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this from my, from my own perspective. Now that's 20 years later is, um, you were very generous with your knowledge to, uh, outside of the company, people like me and, you know, uh, quite a list and, it's up to you on exactly who you want to talk about. Mike Bowen is one of them. He's obviously, uh, most people probably know him today more from his NMRA racing than his shop. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's been around the whole time and he's benefited huge from me. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for you. And I think there's quite a few people in that position. Um, so <clears throat> the way I looked at it is at some point you kind of collected certain people that you felt either deserving or could do well, or I don't know exactly how you decided to choose these people, but you kind of had a circle around you uh, that you would basically mentor, you know, and like at a very high level, not just, Hey, Jerry, I need some help. You were doing like very detailed instructions. In fact, that's why Jerry's here today. He's here to help my, uh, you know, some of my new staff and review some, uh, uh, some training. Even 20 years later, he's here helping us, uh, helping me, uh, you know, move forward in the industry. What made you do that? I mean, and to be clear, uh, you know, it's not like it was like, Hey, for 10 grand, I'm going to teach you how to tune. It was very benevolent, you know? And I think it was, at least from my perspective, it's probably a lot of motiv uh, motivations for it. And one of them was, you know, you, you wanted to see your baby succeed and the tuning thing succeed and you needed people to actually learn it beyond the value file. So like what motivated you to do all that? The motivation was it, uh, um, was for the, the tuning industry is, is to turn into something that was quite good in quality and so people could modify their cars mm -hmm. and have them run the way they're supposed to run, not just run well, but run great, you know, and have people understand how, why and how the OEMs did certain things, what compromises they made and be able to understand and make those similar compromises. Mm. And, and that was, you know, I, I mean, I could have done nothing mm. and not helped anybody and then walked away. And then what good does that do to anybody? What good does that do to anything? Right. You know? that, so, yeah. so I wanted to make sure there was enough uh, of the correct knowledge out there so that when I choose to walk away, which I kind of did at the beginning of this year, um, although I still help you and I still help Dan at Livernoy a little bit, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, that this industry would keep moving forward and not stop because I walked away. Yeah, no. And that's exactly how I saw it because, you know, you could build the, the, the best system to do this, but there's nowhere to like truly learn this stuff. Even today, uh, back then when you were still at SCT, um, and I, 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 
you had given some pictures from uh, one of the meetings we had, I think up at Livernois of like one of the first training sessions. I found more of those. And it's funny to look at those pictures and see the faces uh, uh, at that one, I think it was one of the first ones. I don't know if it was the exact first one. Like it was at SCT headquarters and it was like yep. an official SCT class. I'm yep. not talking about that. What we were just talking about, this was more of a personal right. thing. And it was probably yeah, after there were two it. or three official SCT classes that I taught. And after that, it was basically, I'd call you or send you an email and say, Hey, I'm teaching a class. You're welcome to come. Yep. And, yeah. and there was typically, well, that's it, but there was really never any charge for any of it. Mm. And then the last one I did four years ago, uh, Dan Millen took it upon himself, which is perfectly fine. He mm. asked me if it was okay mm. to send a note out and everybody and say, Hey, you know, Jerry's doing this, you know, it'd be nice if everybody contributed some small amount of money to pay him to do this. Yeah. Cause I intended to teach the last, you know, the, the one four years ago and not charge anybody. Yeah. There was 1100 PowerPoint slides. Well, that and that's, together. that's the point of, <laughs> that's why I'm brought it up because it's not like to do that and charge 10 grand for it, like, or something is, you know, worth it. But to do all that work with zero return, other than maybe just seeing, you know, people I, succeed yeah. with your information. That's, I want to see it done yeah. right. Yeah. You so, and, and I think that's super important to do because, uh, and at that point you were not even directly involved in that, the market you were helping because after SCT, I'd like to talk about that because the important thing to remember here is like, you know, there's somebody like me who's more of an enthusiast that turned into a tuner and I've done well with the information you've given me. Um, but I'm not an engineer. Uh, you know, I'm fairly educated, but not at that level where, you know, somebody like you is, you know, 10 times higher level. Like you could kind of do almost anything that you'd want to do after SCT, you know, you, continued down a similar path that doesn't really relate to what we do, but it was, you know, the same type of deal, but on a much different level. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Cause that, that was very almost more impressive to me than what you did with SCT because you were just kind of fine tuning cars with SCT. And now you're going into like completely converting them to different fuels and all that type of deal. So the last training class I taught for SCT was actually up in Michigan. I believe it was probably about 2005 or six. I have to go back and look at the, look at the records and stuff. And, and there was a sales guy, Mike Schmack, you probably have met Mike, mm -hmm. you know, and yep. he was in the industry for a while. I don't know what Mike's doing now. Um, but he was in the industry for a while and he was a sales guy at the time. And, and Mike tells me there's going to be a couple of people coming in from a company in Texas that want to learn about OBD2 because they have some alternate fuel, natural gas thing going on and, uh, and they'd like to learn more about it. So, you know, normally when I teach a class, the only thing I talk about OBD2 emissions is basically, you know, 30 to 60 seconds of how you make it all go away so it doesn't become a problem. But I spent probably an hour talking about uh, OBD2 and emissions stuff at the end of that class. And there was a guy, there were two people there. Uh, I can't remember what the one guy's name was. The other guy's name is Keith Thompson. Keith has became a very, very close friend of mine through the years from that day. And, uh, and he leaves the class and uh, uh, he's getting on an airplane to fly back to his home in Jacksonville. And his boss calls him up and says, his boss asks him, uh, well, let me back up first. What happened was, is when the, the things with, with California, things with CARB, when the OBD2 was a requirement across the all cars and starting in 1996. So all cars had to meet all the OBD2 compliance. And that's a whole, we could have a, a long discussion talking about OBD and emissions, another podcast, if you so desired. 
but they, the car people gave the alternate fuel industry a pass and you didn't have to do OBD2 demonstration in for like six, seven, eight years. So it wasn't until 2004 that the alternate fuel industry actually had to, to meet OBD2 compliance. Well, they don't know how to do it. They're, you know, they would use what I call strap-on computers. It was a computer that took over the fueling of the engine, took over the O2 sensors, and it would basically just do whatever they wanted it to do. But you're never going to pass OBD2. I mean, you say immediately have, you know, all injector circuit codes are open because the OEM PCM is not controlling the injectors and all kinds of other voodoo like that. Mm. So that has to go away and they have to be able to be compliant with all of that. So the goal of sending Keith and this other guy there was to understand what to do and how to do it. Um, and, uh, and so they could go back and learn it. So Keith's talking to his boss, Roger, on the, uh, at the airport, and Roger asked Keith, well, did you learn enough to know how to do it? And Keith said something like, not a chance. But the guy <laughs> that taught that class, yeah, he could do it. And, uh, and so I don't know. A week That's how or, I describe you. Like, <laughs> can you do this? No, but I know somebody who can. <laughs> and, and like a week or two later, I don't know if it was Roger or Keith, you know, call me back up and said, hey, we got a we got a car we're messing with here in Dallas. Would you fly to Dallas and look at it for us? I'm like, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, so I go to Dallas and it was a Crown Vic they had running on natural gas. And uh, um, I, I'm not even exactly remember sure what I did with it at the time. But anyway, ultimately I become involved with, uh, with this one company out of Texas and we use the OEM computer to control the natural gas fuel injectors and, and have the whole thing start, run and meet emissions. It was the first time that a aftermarket alternate fuel system was controlled by the OEM computer. So the only thing in the middle is if you remember those, you know, everybody loved those original natural gas injectors. They were the, the big fat ones, the EV ones, yeah. and they were low impedance. Mm -hmm. So you had to have a, a, a box to handle the higher current of the, uh, of the low impedance injectors. And that was because so. back then you didn't have injectors that flowed enough for the natural gas? Yeah. Okay. Because since there's flowing to vapor, you only flow about one-tenth the mass. So if you think about, you know, back then a Mustang had a 19-pound injector, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd flow about two pounds per minute of uh, of fuel if it was uh, if it was gas if it was natural gas. Exactly. So in order to flow, you know, uh, uh, twenty pounds per hour or whatever it is of fuel, you got to have a two hundred pound per hour injector of liquid. So they, you know, Bosch developed this injector, and uh, and that's what they use. So, but they were only about one ohm, mm -hmm. and and the rumor was always if you have those run on the OEM in, injector driver, because at that point, you know, all the injector drivers had moved to, to high impedance resistors that you would burn up the driver. Mm. So we had a little box that went ahead and uh, the OEM computer drove the drivers in that box and that box had drivers to handle a high current to drive the injectors. Mm. Um, interestingly, that aside, um, they did an experiment at DFW airport with a V10 and they had the, uh, got rid of that box completely and that bus ran like two years and never burned up an injector driver. Okay, so, so the box may have not even been yeah. important. It's funny that you bring that up because these are all the things that like I kind of forget myself is how challenging things were back then because we didn't have the technology uh, and parts and manufacturers involved that we have today. Uh, like back then, you couldn't, there was no such thing as, you know, big injectors that were high impedance. It took a while for the aftermarket to get caught up. And sometimes they were taking OEM ones and modifying them. And Everybody used the green lightning injectors. Remember yeah, those? Yeah, that those was the were hot injector that, that for was, a long time. Yeah, and it, you know, <laughs> think about that. That was the hot injector for supercharged vehicles. Yeah. That wouldn't yeah. run in a, I'd barely run Which a- Which was 40 NA, some pounds per hour. Right, know? now on a, 
uh, E85 a Mustang GT, that's yeah, the size that's, injector we yep. need, which is just amazing. I mean, you know, uh, most of the uh, newer Mustangs that we have come through here, I mean, we just uh, dynoed a stock Mach 1 and it made like 427 horsepower. And I'm just like, you know, become a little numb to that, you know, because nowadays, especially on blown vehicles, you know, if you're not making eight, nine hundred, a thousand, it's like not impressive. And then here we have a car that's making more power than most lightnings, which were like everybody wanted a lightning. And it's just the, the, the acceleration of all that is just through the roof. Um, and again, I think a lot of that has, you know, you're part of that because of things like SCT, you know, obviously there's other options, there's standalones, but you got massive amounts of people modifying their cars and actually running well, not necessarily with your hands, but because of all the work you did on SCT. So it's like, you can't say that enough, you know, and there's other companies like Diablo and HP. Now they were just a GM company for most of my tuning career and they do well. And one of your uh, other people that you helped out quite a bit is a key person there, Eric Brooks, yep. which I hope to have on the podcast as well. He's a friend of mine. He's part of the inner circle. Yep, very much so. And, you know, your inner circle is grew and shrunk and grew over, over time. And, uh, but there's definitely been, you know, certain people that have been there the whole time. Like, you, you know, I want to point out uh, Dan at Larinois. Uh, you know, we, we work with him on stuff, but, uh, you know, he's a very good personal friend of yours, I believe. And uh, he's another guy that's been there for a very long time uh, as part of your circle. And uh, people, you know, it's interesting to, if you really sat down and I don't want to list every name that's been involved and, you know, there's obviously certain people that have come and gone, but uh, there's a lot of people that owe their whole entire career to you that uh, probably don't realize it as much as they should. So, um, so, so let me rewind briefly because the a question that people are going to be wondering sure. if I don't answer the question okay. is why am I not with SCT? I, I didn't want to bring it up, but I, no, I but, want but to it's hear a fair, it's a fair it's, question. No, and it's been know. a while. So yeah, let's hear it. Um, <laughs> and I believe it was 2007, eight, somewhere in that time frame. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm not going to name any names or anything like that, but there were people at the company that wanted the com that wanted to go in a different direction than what I felt it would be. And I'll give you an example. They were at, at that time, and I don't know anything about SCT now, but at that time they were willing to sell software to anyone. They literally had sold software to businesses that were literally across the street from each other. And their answer was, well, whoever tunes the best will get the business. And I think that's a really poor business model. If you go back to, you know, the Autologic and Mike Wesley days, you know, Mike was very, very choosy who got to use the Autologic software. Mm. You know, Mike may have been a little bit more choosy than I would have been, mm. but it's a good model to do it. You literally don't want to have three or four people in the same city tuning cars. You know, uh, at least back then, you know, there's a lot more tuning going on now. Maybe it's different now. Yeah. And, and so SCT wanted to go that direction where they were basically just going to push software onto anybody that wanted it, irrespective of their ability to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, once upon a time when SCT started, you had to have a valid business license. You had to have a dyno. And there was some other stuff that we criteria that we had that all falls to the wayside. Mm -hmm. And I was standing there like, you know, screaming, no, no, this is not what we started with. If we build a great product and support that product, you know, we'll get the sales mm. and, uh, and people didn't see it that way. So we separated in about 2008.
because of that. Yeah. I, know? I remember that very clearly. Uh, so, and then when, is that when you went directly to the CNG or was there a gap there? Uh, you know, I pretty, you know, I, I had started doing some CNG work after mm -hmm. that training class, mm -hmm. but I probably jumped into it a little bit more at, after that point because it was an industry and I'll, I'll give you an example, um, why the CNG industry took off. There was, there's some stuff in California where, and they, this, this stuff just finally expired recently, but there's different emission standards. And again, that's a whole nother podcast if you ever want to talk about emissions, but you have a NOx standard, NOx standard. And for a heavy duty engine, it's fairly high, 0.2 grams per horsepower hour. The units are not relevant. We'll just say 0.2. If you could certify an engine in the state of California to 0.1 and take a diesel off the road, they'd give you like 25 grand. If you could certify it to 0.05 and take a diesel off the road, they give you 50 grand. If you can certify it to 0.02 and take one of these diesels off the road, they give you 125 grand. So that means companies like UPS, FedEx that have these delivery trucks that are diesels, they can literally have a brand new vehicle for free that runs on natural gas because a, a UPS truck doesn't cost more than about $125,000. Mm. So I can turn around and, and, you know, do the two valve and three valve V10 Fords, the six liter Chevrolet, the seven, three, what was the last one I actually did for in natural gas and have all those things meet the 0.02 standard or lower then uh, there's a huge incentive for people to convert their fleet vehicles to natural gas. So yeah. it kept me busy for a long time because of that. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, I'm dabbling in the 7.3 market and um, one big thing that we're seeing is a lot of drivetrains coming out of them uh, for electric vehicles. But, the, yeah. you know, basically this is the alternative to that. Like you basically take this the vehicle as is and convert it to natural gas. And you had mentioned, you know, helping that company in Texas, but that really kind of ballooned into a fairly big deal where you were doing uh, fleets and stuff, right? It did. You know, yeah. I, I work with a company in Texas pretty much exclusively, but not a real agreement per se mm. uh, for, for quite a few years. And then, uh, and then there was always problems. And I'm sure, you know, nobody can relate to part supply problems, but this back gets back in the late 2000s where uh, you, they, you know, they couldn't necessarily get injectors, the wiring harness problems. There would be a wiring harness for the, the box that changed impedance. We'd have to drive the factory fuel gauge. So there's some, there's some voodoo in the wiring harness for that. Uh, fuel pressure regulators. There'd be problems in the field. I'd go in the field and, and the in Ford injectors, I talked about those big EV ones. You'd see one side of the engine had one kind of injector and the other bank of the engine had a different injector. It had a regulator on it that I never even seen before. <laughs> so and my wife, Tana, would be with me a lot of the time, on, or probably pretty much all the time on, the, on these trips. And she decided to take it upon herself to, you know, what we need to do is we need to supply all these parts and that way all the cars are the same and you don't have to go in the field and fix things. Mm. And so, you know, we started a company and uh, she bought injectors from Bosch. She bought uh, regulators from a company in Luxembourg. We bought uh, harnesses from a, a company was Chicago, now uh, uh, Denver or Colorado, Casper Electronics. Most people know about Casper Electronics. And we put all these parts and pieces together and we would ship those to uh, to the place in Texas and some other places as well to uh, to do that. And then, then the whole thing snowballed because AT&T in like 08, 09 decided they wanted to be green. Mm -hmm. So they're gonna convert a couple thousand E350s over the course of a few years. Mm -hmm. And they picked the, uh, the company in Texas to do the conversion and they picked the pressure regulator forward kit from me and Tana to put on their, all their AT&T vehicles. Well, guess what? At that point, we literally have a two or two and a half person company that's now gonna have, you know, uh, 
eight figures in sales a year if we do this running out of our house, mm-hmm. well, which becomes a little bit tricky. But the 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 RNL carrier drivers would come up and they'd have a forklift and they'd drop regulators in the driveway and all this stuff. <laughs> um, but it, it snowballed. And then ultimately everybody wants to buy the company because everybody wants to be able to brag. They have the AT&T contract. We're not out there trying to sell ourselves to anybody because mm-hmm. we had more than enough than we could do. So we sold the company to a, a, a Italian company and, uh, and we had to work for them for three years and stuff like that. And and she was the uh, the manager of the Michigan facility, and I was the engineering manager. And we actually did that for two years. Uh, the environment was so poor that we literally left a million dollars on the table and walked away after two years. Yeah, it just wasn't worth because it was just it was, they had all the right pieces and they had no orchestra leader. Yeah, you know. So bringing up Dana is actually uh, something I wanted to to touch on. And your dad's sitting right here is. Uh, one thing I really admire about you is, uh, I don't know how close you are with your wife, your dad, your kids. You know, I see you get, you post on Facebook about uh, your family. Um, not everybody can do that, you know, and how important is that to you? Like, is, you know, do you think you would be doing, obviously, uh, you know, she wasn't necessarily directly involved in SCT, but you know, the CNG and everything you've done since, you know, Tane is always by your side. How important do you think that was to push you to do those things? Uh, you know, I guess the point is, is like, how important is family support around you to, to really get anything done? I would say it's beyond critical. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the company in Texas, um, they, they, when we were, before we, uh, before we formed our own company mm-hmm. and started selling all the parts and stuff, they, they offered me a, a pretty decent amount of money, well into the six figures to work just for them, could continue to live in Michigan, Florida, wherever I wanted to do, going to Texas periodically and do stuff and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a difficult job to turn down. And I, I was ready to say yes. Mm-hmm. And, and Tina's, like, Tina's like, look, we can form our own company. We can buy these parts. We can do this. We can control everything ourselves and, and, and we'll be better off in the long run. Mm. And, and, and she's like, you know, do you trust me? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I trust you. So, so we did it. And, and it would probably be completely different if that conversation that her and I had didn't take place. And I agreed to do that. Yeah. That's the impression I get of her. She's very like driven and organized and like, yeah. Motivator type. Well, of and person. for, for a long time, you know, all the natural gas stuff that we did was certified through EPA and CARB. And up until 2016, she dealt with all the regulatory agencies. Mm-hmm. If she was sitting here, she would say, I did the fun stuff and she did all the stuff I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. That's a, pretty much a quote from her. Because dealing with EPA and CARB is, is not fun. EPA yeah. is not so bad, but, but CARB is just ridiculous to deal with. Yeah. Um, and then when her mother got sick with cancer in 2016, she walked away and, and somebody else took over at that point. Gotcha. You know. That's funny. It's uh, probably how I can describe uh, Randy's involvement in here. She gets to do all the things that I, I don't <laughs> like to do, which is, you know, the important things, the bank accounts yep. and paying bills and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I could not do it without Brandy uh, for sure. So that's, that's what I see in you guys. Like you're inseparable. Uh, so, you know, and to, just to keep that, you know, if you over my left shoulder is my dad, and, uh, and while he hasn't been involved in the things that I do for the last, you know, 20 ish years or more, you know, he gave me the, 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 the work ethic and the foundation to be as driven as I am. You know, one of the things I tell people, and, and I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but you hear people say, well, I did my best, mm. you know, 
doing my best, in my opinion, isn't good enough. Not, mm. I don't want to do my best. I want to be the best. And if I do the best I can, I am not the best. I will go back and figure out what I have to do to be the best. And, that, and, and that, that, that's that, awesome. <laughs> that's a good that, that also becomes a problem, right. you know, because, you know, you're, you're extremely critical of yourself. Even if mm. you've done the best you can do and you're not where you need to be, you got to figure out what you did, what you need to do differently. Well, I think that's what really gets a very key factor in anybody that gets to that next level is pushing beyond, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and I find myself doing that a lot where I get to a point where if I step back and look at it, I'm like, this is awesome. You know, like this is better than I thought I could do. And at that point I could be like, I'm done. But I was here uh, last weekend way longer than I should have for like 10 or hours uh with the cam gt 500 on the dyno because i just kept seeing more and i'm like i gotta go home i got other things to do and i'm like <laughs> yeah but like every time yeah. i change something it gets better and like I, you know it's making more power than i've ever made with this combo by far but like i think i can make 40 more you know so then i came in sunday and i was like and then, then i wasted the whole day sunday going backwards you know but then i'm like well now you know and it, it's a curse but it's also like what drives me, you yeah. know, like yep. it's okay. Great. Uh, you know, and it really, like really it comes down to effort. You have to have the tools, the brain to get a certain amount, but so much can get done in effort. And that's the thing that's always stood out about you because, you know, you've had many successful businesses, obviously, you know, you worked at big companies, I'm sure, you know, you're not out there. Like it's, you're not, you don't, you're not money driven. You don't seem money driven. You're, uh, you know, accomplishment driven, Yes, you know, and absolutely. figuring things out that other people can't figure out. Is that, is that partly what drives you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I remember vividly, uh, you know, everybody, when the, when the boss 302 came out, mm -hmm. uh, you have the track key. Mm -hmm. Oh, you'll never be able to track, crack the track key. I don't know if you remember all those. Oh, I remember all that. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, we, we bought a boss 302. We had a, we have a, had a 2013 boss 302 that was Tana's daily driver. And the purpose of that boss 302 was to crack the track key stuff. Mm. And, and I was actually at my, at the house up in Michigan one winter evening. And I was sitting there on with my laptop and I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh my God, I think I know what to do here, how to make this work. So, you know, I didn't have uh, all this stuff in Florida for Tana to try to flash her car and put the track key in it. So I called Bruce Tucker out in California because I know they have access to a couple. I'm like, Bruce, you know, send me the file for Mikey's car or, or Vicky's car and, and I'm going to do all this and you're going to tell me if it works or not. Mm. And, you know, within a couple hours later, he came back and says, oh, yeah, it works. It does everything it's supposed to do. Mm. That's know? awesome. Which was cool. That was a huge accomplishment for such a small part of the market that almost no one cares about. And that's the, <laughs> that's the important thing. And I, you know, I, I feel like I do that sometimes to a fault where I'll yeah. get distracted with something that I'm just like, I got to figure this out, but it's not going to make me any money or it's very little money. Yeah. Definitely a loss based on the time involved, but I still like, I, I feel like I still have to do it because that's where I get my like enjoyment in life yeah, is absolutely. like, you know, I was the kid that somebody's like, I can't figure this. Give me it. I'll, I'll figure it out. Like I, you know, if you tell me you can't figure something out. That is the absolute 100% reason that I want to figure it out because, well, if nobody can figure this out and I can figure it out, then that's pretty cool. Like, you know, it just makes you feel good about things. And, and I think, you know, that's not as common as it should be. You know, people are result driven instead of like the process of figuring things out. Um, I want to switch directions here a little bit uh, you know, since we were on the topic of family and Tana. 
uh, and talk about some of the things that you enjoy to do outside of this, you know, and one of the biggest things, it's not really like a hobby. It's more of like a pastime. I call it is cruising, right? You, I don't know, you know, you're still going on cruises, not as much as you may be used to. I remember one, one thing that I really enjoy on your Facebook is, uh, yearly you post a, a, a summary of, you know, you're a data guy and it's very obvious from this post, you'll say how many hours you were on a, on a cruise and how many miles you flew in an airplane, uh, you know, on the cruising part, I mean, I'm talking things that people wouldn't believe. Like one year, how, didn't you spend like a crazy number of nights on a cruise ship? Probably a hundred, if I had to guess. Yeah, in a, in a year. So like a third of the year yeah. almost was on a cruise ship. Like, was that just a good way for you? You worked on while you were on the ship. Yes. Most of the time. Yep. What, 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 what about that? Like was attractive to you just getting away from everything and being isolated or. It was a combination of a lot of things. Uh, part of it is, is definitely getting away from all the distractions and focusing on things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when, uh, in the alternate fuel world and it never really took off in the performance world, you, you know, as you're aware, flex fuel stuff has been around for a while, mm -hmm. right? Flex fuel logic in the computers have been around for a while. Mm -hmm. And I figured out a way on the cruise ship to basically, you know, if you could poke a given address of Ram, you would make it, you could instant, instantaneously make it think it was running on alcohol. Well, the benefit of that on the alternate fuel industry is you could have a, a biofuel run on gasoline or natural gas. And we actually have a bunch of biofuel vehicles out there with that technology. And I literally invented that in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And I was sending files back to a, a guy that worked for me in, in Michigan, Adam, mm -hmm. to, uh, to try to see if it would work. And after three or four attempts, sure enough, it would work. Mm -hmm. you know, I, thought it would, I thought it would be a great fold into the high performance industry because mm. you could have a, a real time change for a nitrous tune or a race fuel tune, but it, it never really took off gotcha. and that's okay. Yeah. But if you didn't have that isolation, you know, <clears throat> right. I, I, that happens to me occasionally. Unfortunately, I, I don't take the time to do that as often as I would like, but when I do, uh, like uh, last year, I lived at the racetrack for four weeks. I went there for yep. one test session. And then I was yep. like, I, I see something. I, stay I was again. there, I think, for the first test yep, session. Yep. And then I kept going and going and going. And I, it, I definitely went too far with it, stayed there too long. But it was priceless because it definitely put me back in other areas. But I'm like, almost nobody either could or would do this or have a wife that would put up with it or any of those things. And it was such a unique situation for me to be able to like really try so many different things and analyze what was going on. It accelerated, like it was almost a year of going to the track in four weeks because it was like every other day, like they would have a test session or test in tune, or I, I was racing. If their race came through, I raced the race. I just bracket raced with my car. It was really cool. And, uh, you know, I wish I had more time like that. And, uh, I think that's, you know, one of the probably biggest benefits of the cruise for you. And so, well, you know, initially cruising, well, let's back up a little bit more. So I have a friend of mine in, uh, in Panama, Panama City, Panama, the country mm -hmm. uh, that I actually met tuning uh, in the, uh, in the Mar Alberto, in yeah. the Maryland area. And, uh, and I remember, you know, Alberto, if he was sitting here, he would tell you, he would probably even remember the day and the year, but somewhere in the, in like the mid two thousands, he's like, you know, he was, he was getting a law degree at Georgetown. And when he finished up his law degree, he went back to Panama. Now he still comes back to the U.S. periodically. He's like, will you come visit me in Panama? No. Why don't you come visit me? I don't have a passport. There's no need for me to have a passport. There's no reason to leave the United States. None of that stuff. It was a fairly rigid, you know. Right. And, and like I said, and, and now, 
Uh, and so I remember vividly saying that to Alberto and Alberto's trying to tell me how I needed to go to other countries and I could, you know, for, for a very generic term, broaden my horizons of things mm. by going to other places. I'm like, why do I need to leave the United States? And, uh, and since then I've, I've, it was never a goal in my life, but it is now. I never wanted to visit a hundred different countries and I'm at like 95, wow. you, you know, so, so cruising was a way early on to go to different countries and see what they were like. And if we liked it, we would just fly back and spend some time there, you know? And now for the most part, we don't cruise anywhere near as much as we used to, because how many times can you go in the Caribbean? Right. You know, mm. but if it's a unique itinerary or a really good deal, uh, we'll, we'll do it. We just went through the Panama Canal from Fort Lauderdale to Long Beach, got to see Alberto and Maria in Panama, but it was an unbelievably good deal. If you could spend two weeks on a, you know, away, it was the best deal you would ever get going through the Panama Canal. So what flipped your opinion on the other countries? Like, obviously you went somewhere and probably had a very good experience and that kind of like made you more curious about different it, cultures or? It did. I mean, I'd been to some, I'd been on some cruises in the Caribbean and stuff mm. like that. And that was fine. And then we, uh, we, we were using a natural gas regulator from Luxembourg. Mm. It was made in Luxembourg, a little small country in the middle of Europe. And, uh, and we flew to Luxembourg, we flew to Paris and we took a train from Paris to Luxembourg city. And, and it was actually, I enjoyed it, you know, seeing those other countries and, and what they do and how they act and behave and food and, 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 you know, beer and drinks and stuff. It was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. So that's kind of what started all of it, that trip to Luxembourg in 07 or 08, somewhere in that range. So it kind of lit like a curiosity. I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, this is very different. I'm kind of curious. Yeah, yeah that, you know, when I've, I haven't traveled a ton other than the Caribbean, uh, but I, I had a trip to Austria when I was fairly young, uh, just random, and it was eye-opening to me because it was just, you know, we, I, we knew somebody who was in college in the U.S. and he invited us there to go stay with his family. So we went and it was just like super eye-opening. I'm like, this is completely different. And, and we were just in Austria in, in and, November. And some of it was in a very good way. It was just, it was just totally different. Everything was different, you know, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I want to try to do that some more. But you mentioned beer. So I want to bring up beer. I, that, I did mention that's beer. another really cool, <laughs> cool thing uh, that uh, that you recently got into, I think. I mean, at least that's from my perspective. Uh, so, so I used to say all the time that when I retired, I wanted to make beer and I wanted to work on cars again. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, um, I mean, I had a race car. I built the whole thing from the ground up. Mm -hmm. You know, I welded all of it, designed a lot of it, built the whole thing. And, and then when your day job is working on cars, even if it's literally a laptop in your lap and you're working on cars, the last thing you want to do is come home and work on cars again. So you get to the point that where you hate working on cars, mm -hmm. you'll change your own oil and stuff. But that's about it. Um, and then I hated the fact that I hated working on cars. So I wanted to make beer and I wanted to go back to enjoy working on cars again. Mm. So, you know, one of the, uh, I probably would have waited a little longer to make beer, mm. uh, than I did, but you know, this will be maybe the first time my dad hears this sitting over my left shoulder. You know, my dad's had cancer for 25, 26 years. One of the things is cancer feeds on sugar. Uh, my dad loves beer, but all beer has some residual sugar on it. I shouldn't say all. The majority of beer has residual sugar left in it. So you can actually, uh, I, when I started making beer, one of the goals was first I wanted to make beer and make sure it was good and didn't suck. Mm. And then I wanted to try to make beer that had no sugar 
residual sugar left in it because he loves beer. If he has one beer a day and maybe now he can have two beers a day, maybe the time he has left is a little bit more enjoyable because he gets to have a couple of beers a day instead of just one. Mm. So then I figured out how you go ahead and, and you can make a beer. It's a very dry beer. Think of a dry wine and mm. a sweet wine. Mm. It's a similar difference in taste, but you can actually make beer that has no residual sugar. And I've done all kinds of different experimentation with beer. It's some of the coolest things is there's, you know, everybody thinks, oh, there's four or five beer styles, which I probably thought at one time too, but there's probably over a hundred. And I, I was making two gallon batches of beer or one and a half gallon batches of beer of all different kinds of styles from all over the world, which were, you know, some I found to be incredibly good that I had never tried before. Yeah. The part that I find super interesting is the, which is probably how you attack everything. I'm guessing is from a data perspective, like, you know, you're not just like, Oh, I bought a beer kit and I'm following the directions and that looks pretty good. And then I'll just try this. Maybe like you're breaking it down. Like, I mean, I, you know, I'd rather you explain it anyway, but I remember you showing me uh, like graphics and spreadsheets and yeah. like, it was like updating and you can control it from where, you know, you didn't yep. have to be at home. What exactly was that about? So, you know, I tell people making beer is a lot like making tea. Mm -hmm. or coffee you basically have hot water you pump across the grain and you end up with sugar water and then when the after you know and the, the different grains and hops have different tastes and flavors and then you have to ferment it and then uh from a fermentation standpoint you know uh, there's a guy out there who's wrote fairly famous in the beer industry for writing a lot of how-to guides and he always said that that a good fermentation can make up for a bad brewing so if you do have some problems when you're brewing, if you get a good fermentation, it really won't, you really won't notice that you screwed some things up, you know, earlier on. Mm. So the fermentation becomes really important to control. You know, it's, it's an exothermic reaction. So as it ferments, it starts to generate heat. So you just can't have it sitting here on the table in a 75 degree room. You need to control it to like 67, 68 degrees. So, I mean, I went through and I bought a little chiller and I got the biggest a plastic cooler I could. And I have a, a thermocouple that goes in it with a wireless gizmo that I can control from my phone and I can change the temperature that I want and it'll turn the chiller on and off and control the, the water to the exact same temperature. I have a little gizmo called a tilt that floats inside and uh, it's, I've got an accelerometer in it. And as the sugar gets converted to alcohol, the angle of it changes mm -hmm. and the and it's sensitive enough where the accelerometer picks it up and starts to change. And then I, every 15 minutes I get an update to a, a, a Google document in the sky. And no matter where I am in the world, I can look at it. I mean, I was literally in Europe last November and I was checking on the fermentation of my beer back in Florida to make sure it was doing what I wanted it to do. <laughs> and, and that, you know, was a good explanation of like everything you've done. It's, and- uh, so, so here, the, the opposite of all that is, uh, my dad has a friend that he's known for years who lives up in Alabama. He would make beer back, how long ago? 50 years, two 50 years, years ago. And, and he would, when, when the, you know, he would determine if it was done fermenting by putting a, uh, a lit match over it. Um, because if it was still blowing out CO2, it would blow the match out. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't have, exiting CO2 anymore, then the match wouldn't go out. You know, there's no date at all. He's just yeah. fermenting and that's telling him how to make, how to tell it's done. Me, I mean, I can, I get date every 15 minutes, which is probably way more often than I need to, but. That's a pretty good analog cool. to the car world, really, because there's a lot of guys out there that are just, you know, been doing it a long time and they have all these things that almost make no sense to us, but they've kind of found their way to, to get some results with the match versus the data. Yeah. But at some point that's going to stop you, right? Yep. If you're the match guy, you're going to hit a wall. 
but with data, you're, you're, you should always be able to find your way if you don't give up. And that's what's important. Yeah. I mean, I can get you exact numbers, but these are going to be pretty close. If you go back to the original uh, A9L Fox body computer, mm -hmm. there was something like seven or 800 total calibratable parameters. Mm -hmm. Now, most software only has maybe a hundred of them in there. There's a lot of filter constants and timers that are complete in diagnostic stuff that you wouldn't need in all the software. Mm -hmm. When you fast forward to now, yeah, there's about on an automatic car. Yeah. You're looking at probably 40 to 50,000 parameters. Yeah. You which know, is mind blowing. And, and yeah. you can't do that without data. You could, you could find, you could get your way through an A9L with no data other than maybe a, a wide band or something like that, or a dyno to see how much power you're making. Mm. But you can't do that anymore when it gets that complicated. And you know, that kind of goes back to my beginnings in tuning because, so I believe it was end of 2003 that, you know, we had talked about the pro racer package and SCT. I mean, at that point we didn't, I didn't even, nobody knew the name SCT yet. I don't think. And you were just telling me, Hey, this is a new company that's coming. And, uh, you know, so that was like 2004 was when I opened Modular Depot. So at that point, you know, Fox bodies are almost 10 years old, but at the time they seemed old, but now, you know, a coyote is over 10 years old. So it's kind of like the same, same time frame. So I was tuning a lot of those and it was that way for the most part, you know, people came out with different options to data log them, the moat stuff and that. But for the most part, we were tuning those things without much data or like, hooking up a bolt meter to the mass air meter, you yeah. know, things like that. So uh, I missed those days a little bit because it was more like, you know, a seat of the pants kind of like, you know, just make it work mentality. Whereas now there's no way you can do that. Nope. No way you can do that. You know, the GT 500, it's a perfect example. There's certain, you know, the technology is made, uh, you know, I had a conversation with Kobe about this recently. I said, where things really took a, turn for the positive and negative at the same time was you know the coyote because of wide bands and really dependable knock sensors and things like that it allowed in, in this similar way that we we're talking about value files it allowed people to get by somewhat you could still blow a car up but it was much harder to blow a car up or uh you know, hurt it or whatever because of the wide bands, because of the knock sensors, you know, you do a pull and unless you're like way out in left field, the wide bands are going to get the fuel right. The knock sensors should pull the timing. And, uh, it created a lot of dangerous situations. I think it, it helped, but it made dangerous situations because, you know, uh, we were, I was talking about tuning older vehicles, you know, and we had done a pull and there was something wrong with it. And the wide bands saved the fueling, you know, and he, and he lifted also, he saw it but it made it safer i said back in the day you wouldn't even have made a pull you would have hit the gas pedal and it just would have went blah, 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 you know like that's it and then you're like you know so at least not only are you able to do a small pull and realize you're lean and kind you know you get you have more data and you get enough of a pull to where okay i see what's wrong you, you get to a point on an older car even though it's simple that you can't even get it to do enough to get the data, like whether it's idle yeah. or wide open throttle. So all the technology is beneficial, but it's created a situation where, uh, like GT 500, um, you know, I think there's plenty of good tuners around the, around the country, local tuners. Um, but I just don't see how somebody could show up with one of those at a local tuning shop 
at the level that we're doing them thousand plus horsepower and be able to do it right. You know, they could do pretty good. I would agree, you know, and in a, you know, and I feel bad almost. And, uh, you know, it's made me think about it long-term, like, I don't know that I'm qualified to do it or I want to do it, but like, you know, at some point, do I have to transition to doing some of what you've done, which is try to help other than my employees, of course, I'm teaching them, but like, you know, maybe try to help people. I, I don't know the right path there, but like a good example, I just tuned one yesterday and the guy was asking me, he didn't ask about a tune. He asked about shocks for his GT 500. And I answered them because I had aftermarket shocks on mine. And, and then I was like, wait a second, why are you asking about shocks? And he's like, oh, my car is bogging off the line. I go, it has nothing to do with your shocks. And he's like, what is it? I go, don't tell me who tuned your car because I don't want to like badmouth anybody, but it's your tune for sure. And he's like, how do you know that? I go, because I've tuned, I've had one for three and a half years that's probably has 400 dyno pulls and 500 track passes, but we've tuned so many of them that that's what, that's what makes us who we are. It's not just that we're good at it. It's the volume right that we can test period yeah and that comes down to experience exactly and but that makes me feel bad a little bit uh like what about that guy in the middle of the country that doesn't have you or me or somebody to help them and they're trying to tune cars and you know they're good guys like there's just nowhere for that person to learn what i know on that gt500 right and that is and i you know it's a positive for sure obviously it makes me money and makes me valuable but I also am concerned with the longer term, even in today's day and age where there's so many tuners, when it comes to that level, how many guys actually can tune that right in, in the country, not counting you like, cause you just could figure it out, but like that's actively doing them, you know, and just boom, I can do it. Probably less than a dozen. Yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> I was going to say. Like 10, 12 people, you know, and there's, uh, and a lot of those are not remote tuners. Right. They're just guys that are really smart and can do it. So now you go, okay, now you got a guy in some random, I'm not going to say any state because I don't want anybody to get offended, but like a real small state that just has nothing going on there. But the guy has a car. His only choice right now is probably to get a remote tune. And, uh, you know, I think long term, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot. And, you know, I was thinking about like the whole pro racer package and things like that. Like, I think we really, I kind of want to almost pivot how we're doing things. And it's like, okay, I've done this 20 years. I've garnered a huge amount of knowledge and financial gain from the information you gave me, but I'll be 50 next year. And that's, you know, I mean, when I met you, you were 40 or so, I guess. I think I was in late thirties and yeah, yeah, late thirties and 38. And like that, <laughs> makes my brain go crazy. Cause I'm like, I'm like over 10 years older than when I met Jerry. So like, I'm not that guy cause I don't have your background, but I have the, the experience in doing it daily that I think is very valuable. So like, you know, what's your opinion on that? Like long-term, like, you know, should me or somebody else pursue, you know, passing off this knowledge on the stock computer stuff I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not I sure. I think yes. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah. Now there's a, we're in a weird place right now in the country because, mm -hmm. you know, Dodge and GM no longer offer, are going to offer a gasoline high-performance vehicle. Mm -hmm. Well, may, that may or may not change, but that's the case right now. Mm -hmm. You know, Ford's going to have one more 
variant of Mustang. And then allegedly after that, you know, the Mustang will become electric. Um, a lot of that could change, but I mean, GM and Dodge, those stakes are in the ground. I mean, the last gasoline powered high performance Dodge Hellcat or V8 Dodge like that rolls off the assembly line this year, mm-hmm. you know, and that's it. You know, they've, they've walked away they could go back if they needed to. So, so that, you know, the only thing going forward left is really the new, the new Mustang, mm-hmm. you know, and I know, I know Eric Brooks is diligently working on supporting it with HP tuners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there's definitely a need in, you know, my opinion to pass that knowledge on because you're going to have some people, GT500 is a unique case. So we're not going to talk about necessarily GT500 because those people will buy that car mm. and throw the warranty out the window and pay you five or six figures to modify and do what they want to do. Mm. A Mustang GT guy isn't necessarily the same guy. Mm. He may wait till his warranty's expired until he wants to do that. So I, I think you have a lot of people still coming up that in, in the must in the, you know, Mustang GT world mm. that will want their vehicle modified because now they're out of warranty and they want to go down that path, mm. you know, and, and, you know, it, the Mustang GT is not as challenging as a GT 500, but it's not easy by any means, mm. you know, with the 10 speed transmission, the variable cam stuff and all those things, you know, and the, you know, they're, they're 12 to one compression ratio. I, I remember this, you know, here's a, a, a funny tidbit. Uh, Kenny Bell doesn't offer a 2018 or newer Mustang GT kit. Because, mm. you know, there's three or four of them out there in the wild, okay? Mm. One of them is actually here in Florida that I've worked on a little bit. Um, but I remember standing there with Jim Bell in somewhere in probably 2018 or 2017, and we're, stand, we're all standing around looking at this underneath the hood of this car, and I'm like, Jim, 15 years ago, if you told me that, or if I told you I wanted to put a supercharger on a 12 to one compression ratio engine and make it run on 91 octane fuel, you'd have looked at me and told me I was crazy. And I said, you're asking me to do something that you know, you think you, you would have thought 10 years ago or five years ago would be completely insane. Mm. You know? Yeah. So, I, I mean, even when the coyote first came out, that was the talk. It was blowers are over 11 yeah. to one, forget it. You know, so. you know but, but you can get there from yeah. here, but it's yeah. a, you know, you got to have the right knowledge to be able to, you know, there's a lot of people out there putting blowers on 18 and newer Mustangs. Don't mm. get me wrong. Mm. There's a lot of blown up 18 and newer Mustangs out there too. Yeah. You know, the, the number one and number two selling short blocks at Livernoy Motorsports. I don't remember which one's one and which one's two, six, four Dodge, five liter coyote, mm. because those are the most fragile engines out there. They put blowers on them and they blow up. You know, if you get somebody who just makes one little mistake, that motor is done. Yeah. And that's what I tell people, you know, I'm like, you know, when people are really chasing a number on the coyote, the newer coyotes, uh, especially on 93, you know, we just did one the other day and it made right at 700 at the wheel with the twin turbo Mach one. And, uh, you know, everybody's like, well, you know, I think we can run a little bit more boost. I go, I don't care if we can make more power even safely here on the dyno, like 700 is like my limit on roughly on 93. And I don't even yeah. like to see him that high, but it was a turbo vehicle. So like with a blower car, it's, you know, <clears throat> if you're over 600 with your blown 18 plus, you should just be happy with that unless you go E85, of right. course, and then that changes things. And, you know, the introduction to DI helped that quite a bit, but that's also when the compression got bumped up. Yep. W- what's your opinion on like, that whole situation with the dual fuel, like w- w- why, why does Ford add something like that in this situation? Like why not one or the other? Add one in the situation? Uh, like a dual, like a DI and port injection. Oh, that's easy. Um, so gasoline is really an amazing liquid. It does all kinds of different things. And one of the things it does, it lubricates 
valves and valve seats really, really well. Mm. You know, if we can go back to my natural gas experience, you take that vehicle, you run it on natural gas, you're still injecting it in the same spot where the gasoline injector was. And if you do nothing to that engine, here's a good example. You know, we had uh, V10 Fords uh, in a shuttle bus. That's like a bread loaf going through the air, right? Mm. So you have high low, just to even cruise, you know, when you're out in California in Palm Springs and it's hundred degrees out, you're probably cruising at zero vacuum the entire time. You know, non-variable cam engine, you're zero vacuum, just cruising around. And there were engines that that had valve seat recession within like 30, 40,000 miles with stock cylinder heads. You know, you go to an E85 head. Uh, we had some Crown Vicks on the, in California. They would make it 100, 120,000 miles till they had valve seat recession. You know, so when we do natural gas, we actually use a very uh, special valve seat material and valve material to prevent valve seat recession. Mm. The problem with Ford, the reason Ford did that is because uh, is really twofold. One becomes the the high mileage valve seat recession. Because mm. even with all the right parts, you're still going to hammer those valves into the valve seats and have some problems potentially in the warranty period. Mm. So you need if you if you inject the fuel through the port, that port is lubricating the valves and seats and and mitigates all of that. The other problem is uh, if you pay attention, pay well. I think you've experienced this with your old Explorer. You had to have it walnut blasted, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Why'd you have to have it walnut blasted? Because the valves are totally coked, uh, up. coked up. And and if you spray fuel upstream, see, that's all being sprayed downstream. You have a little overlap period where the piston's coming up, the exhaust, you know, so there's some stuff blowing back slightly into the valve. And then when it comes, the piston comes back down, you're spraying fuel directly into the cylinder. What's cleaning the backside of that valve? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You know, so Ford did that to keep, uh, for valve seat recession and to keep the valves clean. You know, you look at a 3.6 GM. I did some natural gas 3.6 GMs that were direct injection mm. uh, for uh, out in Las Vegas for some limos. And and we switched it to port injection. We actually, it was use little tubes and stuff like that to put it into the manifold because it's a vapor fuel. It's a gaseous fuel. So who cares about that? And uh, uh, man, we ended up with uh, all these, not every vehicle, but some of the vehicles, you'd pull the intake off and you just like your Explorer, you'd see all this coke build, coking buildup on the backside of the intake valves and they're blaming it on natural gas, mm. you know, which it isn't. It's just the way it's designed, but it's it's bad on some engine designs. Some are okay, some aren't. And, and do you think, is that how they make the decision or is it cost-based? Because obviously there's EcoBoosts that are DI only that don't yes. have the port injection. Yeah. When you look at the, like the 1.5, the two four cylinder, the two seven, and the three liter EcoBoost. Those engines were pretty much designed from the ground up to be direct injected turbocharged engines. Mm. And when you do that, you can make some design changes to to mitigate a lot of that. Gotcha. Everybody remembers the three valve spark plug. Remember the original three valve spark plug? Mm, yeah. You know, oh, I mean, give a break one it. off. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And why was the spark plug that way? Because that was originally designed to be DI, and they changed it at the last minute. And that's where they put the spark plug where the injector was going to be. And it was the inject the spark plug from hell. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> was. Uh, so now let's go the other direction. You know, why add DI to the Mustang? It, you know, obviously well, there's a decent amount of cost, but is it mostly due to, to for the high compression and to deal with that? It's the high compression and the high compression gets some fuel economy. You know, the fuel economy standards, uh, most every year continually to slowly bump up, mm. you know, where you have to have a, the, the cafe, I should say, mm. corporate average fuel economy. You take a weighted sales volume average of all the vehicles you sell mm. and you have to be above a certain amount. And, uh, you know, obviously 
you have things like Mustangs that are going to be below that amount. So you're going to do you're going to do DI for two reasons mainly. One for fuel economy, and two you do get some emission improvement in them mm. because you don't have as much hydrocarbon generated. Hydrocarbon the best way to describe it is fuel trapped in cracks and crevices. Mm. And there's places on intake ports and things like that for that fuel to trap. And then, uh, and then that fuel gets pulled out on D cells. If you're spraying it right in the cylinder, you're going to minimize the amount of hydrocarbon you make. Okay. And on a gasoline engine, there's three relevant emission constituents that are measured, hydrocarbon, CO, and NOx. Mm. And most gasoline engines, are you calibrate them to the hydrocarbon standard. That's the one you're always concerned with most. Natural gas, it was always NOx. A higher cylinder temperature and pressure makes NOx, and natural gas has a hotter flame than gasoline. So we were always, always concerned about NOx on natural gas, and the gasoline people are always concerned about hydrocarbon. Okay, so this is a much bigger question, and maybe we'll do another podcast, like you said, on emissions, but I just want your general thoughts on this. We talked about the program where if you take a diesel off, you get all this money, yep. and the cafe standards and Ford spending all this extra money to lower their uh, or raise their fuel economy by a small percentage. Do you feel, you know, taking out the facts of if it's really an impact or not, do you feel all that money involved in that is worthwhile? You know, like, do you think it's more a case of like, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? We're a capitalist society. Everybody should game the system if they're not like breaking the laws, but not being educated in the details, which you are. When I see like, you know, somebody getting 50 grand to take the diesel off and they're doing this in volume, huge amounts of money. What is, what's your opinion of that? Like, do you think it's worth our money to do that? Because it's, it's our money, right? At the, at the base, like it's not, it's not it's taxpayer, go, money. It's taxpayer, it's taxpayer money. Taxpayer so money. So we're paying this company yep. $50,000 to make the air cleaner. And if it was truly making an impact, then, you know, you can justify it. And that's probably the argument. Is it really doing anything? Is it just people taking advantage of government programs to gain money? You know? so, so here's what I can tell you from a practical experience standpoint. The first trip I ever took to California was in the fall of 1986. A friend of mine I went to college with, took a job with Hughes Aircraft, and, uh, and they would only move so many vehicles. He had a race car and whatnot. And so we, we drove from southeastern Michigan to Manhattan Beach, California, over the course of three days, I believe. And, and in 1986, when we were coming down uh, I-10 through the Riverside area, the smog was so bad, people would have their headlights turned on and it was like a reddish, uh, rustish colored haze, okay? Um, and that's what it was like in 1986. Mm. You know, now when you go out there, I've been out there a bunch because Kenny Bell's in Ranch Cucamonga, which I worked a lot with, and they're near you know, the Riverside, Ontario area. Now, you probably have, uh, you never see any red haze out there anymore. On hot days, you'll get like a white haze, and on little cooler days, it's actually clear. So, so without a doubt, you know, does taking a diesel off the road help? Absolutely, because diesels mm. are, are horrible emitters. Mm. You know, but all the emission standards lowering mm. is, you know, from my standpoint, has actually cleaned up the air in California. Most of the a, a new car driving on the road in California mm. is probably has cleaner air coming out the tailpipe than what's going in. Yeah, and I, you know, I see obviously there's a practical example you given, but I think with a lot of things in this world, uh, a lot of things start out for good reasons and 
good results yep. and then they accelerate to the point they of go too far too far yep and to me it feels like it's kind of gone that way and it's easy agree. to say that because we're in the time when our air is cleaner and so you know it's just like anything else it's like well things are good so of course you're going to think you don't need that but then if we didn't do that where would we be like you said but just with anything government involved i think it just turns into excessive spending and also it's not just it, it, you're getting hit in multiple ways right we're paying that fifty thousand dollars to that company to take the diesel off the road plus my mustang's more expensive because they're putting all this extra technology in it to yep. meet all the standards and it's getting to the point where we, you know it's going to they may be taking that away from us completely because of these same laws with going electric and what's your opinion on electric vehicles <laughs> i didn't even think i was gonna ask that one but uh. <laughs> I, I don't like electric vehicles in, you know, I think there's, um, I think a dedicated electric vehicle is horrible. Mm. I know there's people out there that are going to vehemently disagree with that. But if your purpose of an electric vehicle is to be green, you know, what about you have coal fired power plants, you have natural gas power plants, where is the electricity coming? What about the lithium it takes for that battery? Mm. You know, things like that, that, that arguments a lot of people have heard, but let's just go one step further. A couple of years ago, my dad and I drove from his house all the way up to Michigan. We towed a boat up there to uh, to give it to my cousin, Randy, you know, Randy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so we towed, we used my F-150 and went up there. And, and we literally stopped one time on the way up. We stopped in, I think in Tennessee. Uh, we did, we had to stop for gas, obviously, but we, we made it in, in two days. Right. If that was an electric truck, how many days would that same, same trip have taken? I mean, seven, eight. Yeah. Based on the testing of the, uh, the lightning, the lightning it's yeah. crazy how bad it you is. You know, that's, that's not practical. I think if you want to do the right thing for the environment and, mm. and, and the big picture, I mean, so if you go to France, mm. France is like 80% nuclear power. An electric vehicle in France may not necessarily be a bad idea. Mm. You still have some range issues, but people don't travel around France like they, they like we do here in the United States. That's probably a great solution for France. Mm. It's not as that solution for the United States. I honestly think a plug-in hybrid is really the the best way to go mm. because you know those will get driving around town. They'll get 150, 200 miles to the gallon. But if you want to drive them across the country, you have a gasoline engine, and you'll still get 40 or 50 miles to the gallon driving across the country. But you don't have to take three or four days to go, you know, a short distance. So do you think the lightning, for instance, is a good example of how things kind of almost went a little wrong? Because like there had to been somebody at Ford that knew if you towed with that vehicle, it was going to be awful. And yeah. do you think they just pushed through because it's green and we got to do it. And, you know, you think, I mean, so, so I don't, I don't know much about the Ford aspect of it, but I can tell you, I read an interview with the, uh, the North American CEO of Stellantis, which mm. is Chrysler. Mm. And, uh, and he, they were talking about the demise of the Hellcat engine and all that stuff in, uh, in going to electric. And, and he flat out said in this interview, which was about a year, year and a half ago, that it's all driven because of the current administration in Washington. Mm. If it wasn't that administration, they wouldn't have the pressure on them to do with the things that they're doing now. So my gut feeling would be yes. Now Ford is the one company that's resisting. I realize they have the lightning out there. Yeah. From a high performance standpoint, that's a great vehicle. Yeah. From a truck standpoint, that's a horrible vehicle. Exactly. You know, um, but Ford is probably out of the three manufacturers. They're the ones dragging their feet the most and doing all that stuff. In my opinion, when you look out what's going on, yeah. you know, again, you have a gasoline internal combustion engine, gasoline Mustang. It's 
going to have a new generation come out by the next month or two, uh-huh. the, the Mustang, and it'll be around for four or five years mm. where all the high performance gasoline engines are gone from, from Dodge and GM. And it's, it's interesting you say that and, <coughs> and put those companies against each other like that, because I do find myself uh, happy that I'm a Ford guy for those reasons, but I see other ch- choices being made that I wish they were more like Dodge, right? Like when the new GT came out, the decision to go EcoBoost, right? I understand why they did it and all that. Uh, or, you know, you've got the new Corvette, which is, I, I don't love the, the standard C8, but the Z06, whether you think that engine is going to last or not, it's pretty amazing. And then they're going to do a twin turbo version of that. It's like, that's what dreams were made of. And yes, Ford gave us the GT500, which I dreamt about for the last 10 years before it came out because I'm like, <laughs> You know, and you know, you see the GTRs out there, and like, like high, you know, the DCT, and just a well balanced car. Period, right? Like the thirteen, fourteen GT five hundred was an awesome car. I would love to have one long term for my collection, but it's not even the same conversation at all. It's completely different. You know, so Ford did give us an amazing. I would. It's not considered a supercar. It is to me, uh, but they never like made that. Like, it seems like they just pull back at the last minute on the really high-end things. And you think that's, I had this conversation with somebody recently. Do you think that's more related to the environment or do you think there's just not that one guy at Ford that pushes to go in that direction? Like, do you think, you know, it's to me, it's so odd with billions of people in this world that you are responsible for a lot of things that happen in the performance world. And there's other people that there's like one person that's pretty important. Hold on. Sure. <coughs> I'm going to do that while you're talking. Oh, that's okay. <coughs> I have a, a great uh, answer for that about being one person, but keep going. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, it seems like to me, not even just in the car business, anything really there's, with billions of people in this world, we can identify a small number of people in almost any field that were critical in getting us to this point. And now you could say, well, if it wasn't them, it might've been somebody else, but I'm not so sure that's the case. You know, in your case, you were a mentor to probably two of the biggest remote tuners ever in Ford. You know, hopefully I'm considering myself one of them. Uh, So, uh, what if you didn't exist or you didn't care to do that? Would I, I wouldn't be doing this. So would there be somebody else to have filled that gap? Uh, so it, 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 when it comes to Ford, do you think that's the problem? I do think it comes down to possibly one person. I'm going to tell a story that few people know. I've told it to a few people. The 1999 Cobra. I think, you know, knowing what we know now, you probably say that was a disaster for Ford, right? All the, the lawsuits of lack of power and all this stuff. Did you know that car was supposed to be supercharged? I did not. There were prototypes built. There was a guy at Ford. His name was Tom Johnson. Uh, he was Mr. Supercharger. Tom, for developments and trying things out, he put a supercharger on anything. We had supercharged Crown Vicks. We had supercharged town cars. We had a supercharged minivan. Mm-hmm. We put a supercharger on a 3.8 Windstar. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tom put blowers on everything. And he got to the point where he sold the 99 Mustang as a, I believe it was an Eaton M90 
with no intercooler, which I know we all think is bad, but you got to go back. You know, we're talking about 25, almost, you know, years ago when these uh, Tom selling this program. So he's going to sold this thing is a four, six, four valve M90 non-intercooled four or five pounds of boost. That, that car would have been a game changer, mm. you know, and there were prototypes built. They were developing them. They were in the emissions lab, the whole nine yards. I mean, that, this was going to happen. Mm. Uh, Tom was actually a friend of mine. Tom goes on vacation in North Carolina and he's jogging on the beach and has a massive heart attack and dies. And uh, <clears throat> at that point, and you can probably talk to Brian Wolf about this when you talk to Brian, because the modular mafia does really exist mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, at least in my opinion, in Ford Motor Company, the modular mafia comes in and they go to, to uh, the Mustang program manager um, and they're like, hey, you know, <clears throat> you can get rid of this thing called super, the supercharger. We have this new idea called Tumbleport it worked out well, didn't it? Um, and you can save so much money in the Tumbleport engine, you can add IRS to it and your car will be just as, just as powerful. And, and the Mustang program manager bought it and that's what it ended up being. But if Tom was still alive, I would be stunned if the 99 Cobra was not a, a 464 valve, non-intercooled supercharged car. Yeah. So it just took that one guy to yep. stand up for the program. And, you know, that's that's kind of how I and see it's, it. It's amazing how one person can change the course of so much stuff like that. Yeah, that's the I think about that a lot just in the world in general, whether it be politics or whatever. It's like how how do we get in that situation where one person is influencing millions of people uh and not even like consciously like that guy, right? Like he's just doing his job. He loves superchargers and all that. But like he's in a position that, you know, determines the direction that things are going to go. You know, is there anybody in the industry that not necessarily was a mentor to you, but you find very kind of important in how things have gone? Is, or is there anybody you want to point out? You think? Um, yeah, we haven't already. So, so, uh, you know, one of the early on things that, uh, that I think was important is, you know, I, I mentioned to you how Steve, you know, he used to build the portable dinos and Steve mm -hmm. used to always say that he specializes in data, mm -hmm. you know, and he was the first guy to like put, you know, voltage inputs in his, in the dyno jet screen and be able to get a, 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 a trace of the our power and torque along with the wideband, but along with anything else, you could put mm. boost on it. You could put mass air meter voltage on it. And Steve said, you know, my job is data. And he, I feel that those early days at Steve, mm. when he kept pushing me like, well, what is this doing? Can't we measure this? Can't we look at that? Mm. You know, and he's probably one of the guys uh, that probably, you know, convinced me that, Hey man, I, you got to have all this stuff. Because if you don't, you're not you're not doing the right job. I think you know? that's a great example because I've found myself in that position before. And I don't think it's necessary out of laziness. It's more perspective where you have somebody around you like that that actually pushes you, but not because you're lazy, but just to like give you a perspective you don't have, right? Because yeah. you already know more than Steve, but you need to have his perspective from a, a less educated perspective on that to go, Hey, we need this and we need that. And, you know, I think that's really key. So we talk about the one person, but it, but who you surround yourself with is very important too. Right. You know, and then another person is, uh, which is a little bit different is, uh, is Bruce Tucker who just retired at the end of last year. I think Bruce is a super interesting guy. Uh, you know, he's a very interesting guy, <laughs> yeah. even outside of the tuning realm. Yeah. But you know, 
he would send me a note or give me a phone call and be like, hey, we got a customer that came in. They got an 88 five liter bank fire Crown Vic and they're paying us to build an engine and port the iron heads. And I'm like, port the iron heads? There's carb legal aluminum heads you could put on. He goes, I know, customer wants stock heads. He goes, can you reverse engineer the file and, and, uh, and, and make it so I can tune this thing? You know, and he, uh, you know, he, the weird stuff that he brought up through the years mm -hmm. kept me to some extent sharper on the older things, you know, because mm -hmm. Bruce would come up with some completely bizarre stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, another person uh, in the industry, I don't know if you know, do you know Clint? Uh, wasn't he, um, what, he was involved with some software, right? He or, makes, he makes binary. Editor. Yes. Yes. That's how I know him. You I know, can't remember his last name. And, uh, yeah, it'll come to me, but, uh, but, you know, Clint and I work together and he has this whole, I realize he offers newer stuff, mm -hmm. so, but you know, if you have an Eek 4 or even an Eek 5, you know, like I told Dan, I mean, Dan has got the original, I call it the Chris Con because Chris Danner made it, mm -hmm. you know, that I probably tuned your car with the big box and yep. everything. Dan has that, you know, and I've showed him how to use it. Oh, so Danner made that? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Dan has that. I've showed Dan how to use it. And you know what? He never uses it mm. because he's, you know, Dan's starting to do some Eek 4 stuff and some older stuff, which you know, you and I can talk about another time mm -hmm. because again, the industry's, you know, there's like an end line coming of new cars. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I told Dan, it's like, man, you need to, uh, you need to call Clint and you need to get binary editor and you need to get a tweaker from the, the dude in Texas or whatever. And that's how you're going to tune the car, mm -hmm. you know, and, and cause you can get all data, all the data logging and all that stuff. Right. And, uh, you know, and everybody that uses Clint's stuff, <laughs> It's a, uh, which is, you know, again, it's based off of the original GUI Eek tuner, mm. but I mean, everybody that does an Eek 4 that uses Clint's stuff is, is just amazed at how well it works. Yeah. And for the, for everybody watching this, uh, Eek 4 and Eek 5 is the computer that came in Mustangs. Eek 4 was through 95, right? Or uh, well, well, the five liter month, the, through 95 on for the, the GT 96 yeah. was an Eek 5, but the, yeah. the three, eight went Eek 5 and 94. Okay. Gotcha. And then that lasted till 2004. And then yeah. <laughs> they often change with, you yeah. know, the model changes yeah. and for various reasons to add features and things like that. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, your opinion on all the security stuff that we've been dealing with since, uh, I guess it really came really to the, to a head in the Dodge days. Uh, but now things, I, I think they've done it for different reasons though, haven't they? Or why don't you explain it? Cause I don't know much about the reasons behind why they locked down the PCMs. So, so <clears throat> Dodge does not want anyone to ever tune their vehicles. I mean, they'll, they've made that clear. They want nobody modifying anything. Mm. I think that's a poor standpoint. You know, when the 6.4 Challenger came out in 2011, there was a huge spike in sales. Mm -hmm. And then the sales dropped because it was several years later until you could ever flash that processor. And people want to get that Challenger with a new 6.4 engine and they want to put a blower on it. They want to do this, they want to do that, and they couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's when, you know, Tim Milliken, you know, at least what I was told you know, by, by Tim, figured out how to uh, to flash the GPEC 2 that they made it so it was, you know, unflashable and to be honest no one's ever no one's ever figured out the checksumming algorithm for a dodge mm. i absolutely can promise you that mm. they've just found a way around it 
you know? And then when they found that way around it, when Tim found that way around it, they changed it again in 2015. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, everybody's got a 2015 Dodge has to send your processor in Mm -hmm. to basically put in the old 2011 to 2014 bootloader so you can use that workaround to flash it. Because Dodge just doesn't want you to do it. For whatever reason, they just don't. Right. Um, But now Ford, well, let's go with GM. Because GM has locked everybody out as well. The GM came from, do you remember, remember seeing, I don't know if it was 60 minutes or one of those, they had some guys that took over some Dodge Durango or something, right? Remotely or something. Remotely. And we're doing stuff. So that's what forced basically GM into like, oh my God, if we're going to have this drive-by wire and now you have, you know, the uh, lane assist departure stuff. So you can move the steering wheel to some extent. You can brake the car to some extent, all electronically without a driver ever even in the seat. Mm. You know, and, and GM got scared. The GM actually brought every tuning company in. I don't know if you ever heard that. No. Uh, God, it's got to be five years ago, something like that. They brought every tuning company in and saying, we're locking you out of the Camaro. We're going to do this Camaro and we're going to use a full RSA encryption and you're never going to get into it. And they're right. No one, to my knowledge, I don't think everybody's ever gotten through it, just like the Dodge. I do think HP tuners may have some, finally have some workarounds, mm. but that's going to be a open it up and change all the stuff inside most likely, mm. you know, but, but in, in, in all the tuning companies that, that GM invited in, they, they're like, Hey, we, we accept that. Mm. How about you offer us a processor that the, the customer that owns the car will sign a waiver, taking, you know, hold you harmless, no liability, but it'll let us modify it. Nope. Won't do it. You know, so that's what GM did. Mm. So, uh, and again, Ford resisted this longer Ford, than Ford anybody. resisted it. Yeah. And again, another reason that I love Ford. In fact, you, you know, you can ask Brian Wolf when Brian Wolf was in charge of Ford racing. I, I, I heard this indirectly, but you can ask Brian. Brian actually said at one point that as long as he was in, in charge, nobody was ever going to lock anybody out of a Ford. Yeah. Because the aftermarket, you know, Brian's smart enough to understand. I mean, Brian's a super smart guy mm. and he's smart enough to understand that aftermarket for the Mustang is a huge sales driver. You know? and, and on top of that, he was a very big racer. If you asked yeah. who's like 10 of the top influential outlaw Mustang racers from like the late 90s, early 2000s, Brian's yeah. on that list every yeah. single time. And we're going to have Brian on the show. Uh, so what, 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 ha, what do you think has motivated Ford to do it now? Is it have a lot to do with the over-the-air updates? Is that the main reason? Yeah, or, okay. I know it all has to do with over-the-air updates. And it has to do with there's, uh, you know, in California right now. And for the most part, the stuff that happens in California eventually works its way into EPA and the rest of the country. Mm. And so you have what's called a CVN and a CVN is a calibration verification number, a validation number, something like that. And it basically performs an algorithm on the calibration portion of the processor. And it reports back a number, Mm. a hexadecimal, very large hexadecimal number in all the OEMs, including the natural gas stuff, and we sold stuff in California, you have to report the CVN to California. And when you get smogged and they press you, plug you in, your CVN better match what was in their database of what was reported. And if not, guess what? You're not going to be smogged. You, mm-hmm. you will no longer be able to get your license plates. I know a ton of, initially they targeted, California targeted all the 0304 Cobras, mm-hmm. heavily modified car, right? Mm-hmm. And and they modify, you know, they basically were not, they were not allowing people to modify. They were, they were not allowing them to renew their plates because the cars have been modified because the CVN didn't match. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever see that coming out of California? I do. Yeah. 
I do, and that's and that's I think that's part of the over the air updates and all this stuff on emissions is you know they want to make sure that nobody's going to modify it, and the best way to do that is to have all that happen. Mm. So very very interesting. This is where you know you and I talked earlier. I wish uh, I wish Tim Milliken was still here because uh, Tim would take it a personal challenge to figure a way around it. You know, <clears throat> let's let's talk about him real quick, and then we'll wrap it up because uh, Tim is a very interesting character. I worked with him at Diablo Sport. Um, very interesting character. But good you, way to put it. If you go very interesting <laughs> character. If you go back to Modular Depot days, I don't remember the name of the software, but he was trying to compete with yes. you, right? Yeah. He actually stole a bunch of the stuff from us. Yep. All the descriptions and all that stuff. Yep. My first dealings with Tim was poor. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, the way I look at Tim is, you know, there's certain people that are, uh, you know, like you, you know, college engineering have a very a good resume and the way you came up and Tim, and I don't know his background at all, but he seemed more like a, just a really smart hacker, right? Yes. Like just it's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Just not like a, you know, a typical uh, person like you or not that you're typical, but I guess it's hard to explain without like sounding well, negative, but like, just like a kind of like a, a loose cannon kind of personality and just super smart and like, does it because you can't do it. I'll show you. And then he does it. Champagne and beer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so yeah, back in the day on Modular Depot, when SCT came out, he was trying to launch his software and there was all this, you know, back and forth constantly. And I think I find it very interesting. Um, and I didn't know that because I knew him from back then and it was just totally negative, right? Because of all the controversy. And then I find out that he's in the background of a lot of very important things in this industry. And one of those was, was the, the Dodge thing at Diablo. We worked together yep. at Diablo and he worked remotely, but he was there occasionally. So we got to know each other a little bit. And, uh, you know, unfortunately he's not with us anymore, but uh, I think that's another, you know, pretty important name in this whole deal. You know, Mike Wesley, you mentioned, uh, I think you guys are friendly. Uh, there's quite a few people that were important in this, and we're going to bring them in on the podcast eventually, too, to talk to. Um, but anyway, is there any uh, anybody you want to thank or, you know, mention here before we wrap things up? Uh, yeah, just a couple of things. You know, first off, if it wasn't for, for my wife, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, and that's really over the last 20 years of, with, with Tana, you know, my dad for giving me the foundation to be able to actually get to this point, you know, of, of growing up and, and stuff like that. You know, those are two, without a doubt, the two single biggest influences in my life. You know, mm. early on in tuning, you get to, uh, to Steve at the, from Cleveland mm. because Steve was big on, uh, I said earlier, he always told me he specializes in data mm. in, in, you know, I would mention to Steve something and next time I would go to Cleveland, he would have that data in there. Mm. We would be doing dyno polls and, you know, he'd be like, well, can you monitor this? Can you tell me what this is doing? And I'm like, I didn't even think of that. And, and Steve really pushed me to the limits of, uh, of uh, making sure I had, you know, have all the right data before you make a decision to do anything. Mm. You got to have all the right information and then change something, mm. you know, and then uh, and then Bruce Tucker because he was always, I, I refer Bruce Tucker's nickname was the patron saint of lost causes <laughs> because he would work on these vehicles that nobody else would ever even consider tuning an 88 speed density bank fire crown Vic. And, <laughs> and he pushed the limits for me with older stuff with older Eek fours and even some of the Eek five. And, and, you know, some things like he calls me up one day and wants to be like, Hey, we need a, the cruise control on the boss 302 only works to hundred miles an hour. We need to raise that. And I'm like, 
the hell you do? Why do you have somebody have cruise control on more than 100 miles an hour? <laughs> Come to find out, they have a guy running the Silver State Classic, and uh, and they, you know, that's a timed event through a, a section of highway in Nevada, mm-hmm. and you got to run it like if you're in the 150 mile an hour class, the goal is to average 150 miles an hour, and there's a huge amount of math behind it, but they use cruise control to keep the speed consistent when they need to do that. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll add that in for you. Yeah. You know. That, that's there's, awesome. There's yeah. bizarre stuff like that that Bruce has asked for for the years that nobody else would ever even think and of. And the funniest thing is about Bruce is, uh, you know, he didn't really, he, he, he was almost, tuning was almost part of his like longer term retirement. He was a lawyer yeah. and then he was a radio guy, right? Well, he was a, he was in a band. He was a disc jockey. Oh, disc jockey. Uh, yeah. Then he became the, the, the program manager at the radio station. Then he became a copyright lawyer, mm-hmm. worked in a lot of music copyright stuff, land speed racer. Mm-hmm. When uh, the, the music company got bought out by a bigger conglomerate, he ends up with you know no place to go and he ends up in charge of JBA racing for uh, about 20 years. Yep, and he's so recently retired. He is retired at the end of the year. Very cool. So, All right, well, I really wanna thank you for coming on, Jerry. Uh, you no know, you fun. changed my life. You put me on the right path and I really appreciate your help, you know, to this day. So thanks for coming. Hey, thanks again.